Reed, I found this interesting website. They actually created a people map of the United States where city names are replaced by the most wikipedia resident. I didn't realize Wikipedia was a verb. Yeah, Wik- wikipedia That are born in, lived in, or connected to that place. And it was kind of interesting what we found. Like my dad's side of the family where I spent some of my uh, young growing up years, Laurel, Mississippi, actress Parker Posey. Her dad owned the Nissan dealership. And not surprisingly, here in the Twin Cities, Prince is the most wikipedia resident. Down in Nashville, you got Miley Cyrus, Reed. There you go. I am also noticing that there are some trends across the country that kind of brings our country together. Because many cities are wikipedia the same name. For example, what do Salt Lake City, Tallahassee, and Syracuse, New York, have in common? Their most wikipedia person is Ted Bundy. Ted's spent time in those areas, maybe. I don't know. Spent time is a nice way to describe what impact he may have had to those communities. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 275 of Touchpoint. I'm Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. That's right. And I have to say, Reed, I am not a top Wikipedia person in any city in the United States. (laughs) I've looked everywhere that I lived. And uh, I am not represented on any of these dots, so it seems. Maybe one day. One day. day. So we're going to jump in today. Kind of an interesting episode. I think this will be fun. We may do more of these in the future. We'll see. I would love to kind of have some feedback, see what you think about these types of things. We're, We're purposely not doing an interview today, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The primary one, as we record this, we're only days away from the Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit up in Salt Lake City, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Chris, you'll be there. I will. I won't be able to make it this year, but you'll be there and, and be speaking and gathering interviews and, and all kinds of fun stuff. So we'll have lots of interviews coming, some of which, like your session, for example, may be the entire episode. So it's like, you know, we may have an episode coming up that's just an interview. We thought this was an interesting opportunity to do something a little bit different uh, leading up to that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's always good to kind of keep track of what's happening. Some of the most current trends, obviously, Reed, we have ways that people can do that by subscribing to our newsletter, right? We do. And we're almost doing an audio version of that today or a, uh, a shortened version of it, maybe, I guess. But mm-hmm. uh, to your point, if you're interested, you may be thinking like, what are you talking about? I was listening to a podcast. What's this about a newsletter? You can find out more over at our website, touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health, a website that houses not just our show, but the other shows on the network. And so you can dig around topics and post and different shows and all that kind of stuff there. But also while you're at the website, you'll know something called the TPS report up in the top navigation and what that is, is uh, a newsletter. It comes out every Monday. Uh, it's five articles to start your week. 
plus some other little quick links and things like that. It's primarily just these five articles to kind of kick your week off, aggregated by our show host. And uh, so we thought we would take a few articles today we did not include and, and kind of do an audio version of that. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll pause here for a second, let you go check that out, sign up. All we need is your email address, and then we'll be back and uh, dig into a few articles. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. As promised, we're jumping into a few articles today. And this one from the Harvard Business Review kind of jumped out at me when I saw someone post this on LinkedIn last week. The title raised my eyebrows. Why marketers are returning to traditional advertising. They quote a number of stats in here, but we've seen plenty of things. Uh, we've even talked about some of these studies from Geonetric and otherwise that, that kind of have these state of the industry type things. And we always see that the digital advertising going up, right? So it's it's one of those things where the assumption's been is that traditional advertising is on the decline. Those dollars are being shifted to digital. Uh, that's maybe not the case. Obviously, there has been a, a decrease in traditional advertising, but recent evidence suggests that more money is going into a traditional advertising read over the last year. A survey indicated that from August in 2021 and February 2022, marketers are predicting that traditional advertising spend would increase by anywhere between 1.4% to 2.9%. Interesting. I mean, I've got some assumptions on why this is happening. You know, they're talking here about the, you know, the biggest increase is kind of in that B2C, you know, advertising spend. Yeah. I'd be curious on the, on the B2B side. I still think there's some some opportunity there. But but in any case, they talk about ironically is that companies that earn 100% of their sales through the internet are leading the charge here. So, so people that actually sell all of their merchandise, if you will, online are the ones looking at the kind of the more traditional space. I'm wondering, Ray, if this is reflective of like this larger trend, or maybe not trend, but this larger belief that you should always have a healthy marketing mix, right? It shouldn't always right. be lead one way or the other. You should find that appropriate marketing mix where your audiences will be. And so therefore, you always want to look at sort of a mixed media spend when you're when you're out there doing advertising. Yeah, I think the danger here, and we'll go through what they call out to be some of the reasons for, for, for why this swing is happening, but is to your point, I think the danger here is too much of a, a pendulum swing one way or the other. 
uh, we were over here on the traditional side and everybody got tired of email and direct mail and some of the outdoor pieces and things like that. And so we went all in on the digital side. So everything swung back the other way or was starting to, and, and again, to your point, probably not the healthiest idea. Yeah, not the healthiest idea. This article actually outlines seven drivers behind what they're calling this shift. Let's, let's, let's talk through these a little bit, Reed. The first is around breaking through the digital clutter. Obviously, we know that the online world, there's a lot of advertising now online, right? They actually have found that users, consumers that are online, have reported frustration and negative brand association with digital advertising that clutters and prevents them from reading articles or watching a video or, mm. or you know, a website. I totally get that. And then conversely, on the other hand, they're saying, hey, guess what? Traditional ad spend has much better engagement. Marketing Sherpa reports that more than half of consumers often or always watch traditional television advertisements and read print advertisements that they get in the mail from companies that they're satisfied with. Another researcher, Ubiquity, suggests that traditional media channels, TV, radio, print, outperform digital channels in terms of reach, attention, and engagement. There, there is a noisy uh, component here. You know, you get stuff in the mailbox now, and it's a little bit unique where it used to not be. So again, I think it's this pendulum thing of everybody went digital uh, almost exclusively, and now it's opened up some of these other channels. Next thing on the list here capitalizing on consumers' trust in traditional advertising. So again, this Marketing Sherpa survey that they've referenced a few times throughout this article actually found that uh, the top five most trusted advertising formats are all on the traditional side of the equation. Consumers, they uh, trust most in print advertising, followed by TV, followed by direct mail, followed by radio mm. when they're making purchasing decisions. Do people listen to the radio? That's a whole other problem. <laughs> Does that include other things, radio-ish, radio-adjacent? <laughs> like what we do right now? <laughs> like, uh, like Hulu or uh, podcast advertising, which actually it does. I, we'll get into that in a minute. That's interesting, right? I don't know where they're seeing these print advertising pieces. My son does get Sports Illustrated, so... Maybe there's still some of that stuff floating around. I don't know. Doctor's offices. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can see the television piece, you know, with a, with as much live, you know, you still watch the news or maybe not news, but if you do watch television, it's probably sports and news are the two things that you would not watch on demand, maybe. So right. there's probably some advertising in those two genres, I guess. In terms of this sort of on-demand thing, they do indicate one of their trends is the growing medium of podcasting and how to tap into it. So here we go. This is good. This is what we've been waiting for, right? Podcasts right. are a form of digital media read, and they don't perform the way like banners or display ads and social advertisements work. Guess what? Podcasters are on demand, and studies here show that not only is there a lot of opportunity to advertise on podcasts, there's been a 51% increase in available advertising inventory and many more uh, new podcasts, about a 53% increase and an 81% increase in ad impressions. But they say that listeners trust the podcast hosts more and have more engagement with the podcast, which I think you and I both know. 45% of podcast listeners believe that the hosts of their favorite podcasts actually use the brands mentioned in the shows. Interesting, yeah. That's why I'm, I'm waiting on that Casper mattress ad to come our way, because I need a new mattress. 
That's right. I think it's Helix mattresses now, I'm hearing. But so there you go. There's another trend driving it, which is podcasting. Also, and we've talked about this on the show some around privacy, but it's the decline of third-party cookies. So obviously we've used and relied on these to, to track our consumer, you know, visitors to the website, you know, building personas, things like that. Well, Google's obviously phasing this stuff out. It's still going to be a little bit, I mean, still got a little bit of runway here, but uh, they're going to be phasing it out on Chrome browsers, Apple with its uh, iOS 14 updates. The short of it is we're not going to be able to target people like we used to, right, or in the same ways. So because of that, the pendulum is now swinging back, right? We had this we had this easy button, right, over on the digital side relative to targeting. Well, now we're going back to some of these traditional advertising models. And I wonder how much of that is because we're now we're reverting back to what we're comfortable with or what we know. Anyway, that that's conjecture a little bit. I think that that's kind of a, an overarching trend that we're seeing in some of the shifts that they're suggesting, right? Is that there is sort of this, like we're recorrecting the marketplace. But one of the things that one of the other trends they, they kind of highlight here is that there is this great alignment between digital and traditional working well together. You can leverage both mediums, well, many mediums together to create powerful and and great ways to uh, you know do your advertising mix. Think about the fact that this whole rise of QR codes that happened over the pandemic. We thought QR codes were dead, didn't we read before 2020? Oh man. And now QR codes are everywhere. They're everywhere. I mean I can't you can't eat at a restaurant now without pulling the menu up that way still. In a lot of cases. And trust me, that's very convenient to have that available. But the other thing, too, about using you know different trackable URLs or, or UTM codes, you could actually start to use attribution to tie together all of these multi-channel marketing activities that you're doing to get a better understanding of the overall customer journey through your different digital and traditional channels, right? They underscore here the fact that digital has actually reinforced and enhanced the way we measure traditional media outreach. That is an interesting shift in that it's now starting to be a healthier fit, right, of of a mix. And uh, that kind of leads into the next thing, fine-tuning brand and marketing fit. Uh, They're talking here about that sometimes, you know, traditional advertising is a better fit. You know, so we think about broadcast TV and storytelling, right? So the the advertisement that we used to think about, you know, kind of the madman days of like a campaign that takes into account or focus more wholly around storytelling. Netflix, Hulu, you know, these types of things, streaming services, on-demand TV, things like that, that again, if you're using the free version of some of these platforms or the base paid version or whatever, they still have ads, right? Uh, that's still, still an opportunity. And then to round it out, the last trend that they uh, kind of indicated behind this shift is the fact that we have to revisit digital effectiveness. This is sort of like the underlying story that I think you and I've referred to a couple of times. A fair number of people are tracking digital marketing performance in real time, over 54.8% of marketers that they surveyed, with an additional 35.2% doing it quarterly or weekly. So we're measuring really effectively. But the the digital promise of hyper-targeting and personalization is kind of under scrutiny in terms of its effectiveness. And they actually refer to a couple of academic research studies that have been done. One was published in the Journal of Marketing that shows that retargeting, you know, that traditional digital ways to do things can actually backfire if you do it too early. And that research in computer science has shown that personalization 
can lead to consumer reactance, especially when consumers are unfamiliar with the brand. Reactance means they have a negative perception of your brand. While digital is quote unquote effective, it can almost be too effective or not effective enough, depending on how you do it. And that is also one of the shifts that they are noticing that's causing marketers to kind of look at traditional channels more. You know, when I look at this and that article, that kind of a clickbaity article title of why marketers are returning to traditional advertising, if you said it more, more accurately, it's probably why marketers are starting to embrace a, a mixed media outreach effort for their advertising. Well, let's take a brief pause here. We'll, we'll come back and again, uh, cover another article. But, you know, we, we mentioned a little bit about the privacy piece and some of the changes there, you know, it really starts to kind of bleed into the, the need to create your own data sets for targeting and things like that. And so uh, we'll come back, talk a little bit about that uh, right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring and Touchpoint Media, Live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, next article we're going to dive into uh, is actually titled, Four Tips for Building Your First-Party Data Sets with PPC. And so this is from uh, an article from uh, searchenginejournal.com. Search Engine Journal, there's a few other ones kind of like it. Most of their articles are very kind of list-based, practical, kind of tactical you know, takeaways that you can run with. So anyway, good, good sites to check out, especially if you're thinking about PPC, kind of SEO, SEM. Uh, type stuff in this case. But yeah, four tips, build your first-party data set. So I think uh, first, quick level set, first-party data, that's information uh, or data you collect about your consumer directly. So this is an idea of how to use PPC to do that very thing. And the reason why you want to do that is obviously it makes better sense for you to own this data because the users that end up on your list are in effect, more highly qualified than third-party data that you can purchase or license. It also provides organizations a way to be more helpful to their customers because you start to understand what their needs are more. You get their preferences along the way. And assuming if you're doing this the right way, you kind of have a good understanding of how they're reacting to your messaging. So you get closer to that right message to the right person at the right time concept that we all try to get at. They kind of indicate here it's more forthcoming than some of the other tactics mm. we use now in that it's very transparent where you're getting this data from. So you're, you could actually trust the data a little bit more realistic. So Reed, having said that, why don't we jump into these four tips that uh, the Search Engine Journal has, has given us? 
Well, it talks uh, first uh, and foremost about knowing where to find your audience. Uh, again, with any campaign, you know, one of those primary things you talk about along with measurement and some of those types of things and calls to action, et cetera, is the targeting. Like, you know, who is it? Like, who are we trying to find? Where are they? You know, that kind of thing. So where are they going to be? How they spend their time online? Uh, what types of user experiences are you trying to create? So a lot of the things that you think about when you're developing a persona. That's right in alignment with creating or defining your persona. Quickly behind that, number two is also like that when you're thinking about developing information for those personas is offer them something of value. Sometimes the challenge of advertisers is to offer something valuable to consumers. And we're not talking about free giveaways. What we're talking about that is giving them information that they find relevant and meaningful to them. So they have some questions here that allow organizations when they're trying to determine what is the value that we can provide to our customer. These are the questions they suggest that you go through. So take down the note here. The first is, what is it that my customers really want? If they tell you, if you know overtly what they want, provide them that. Another way to get to that answer, if you don't know that outright, is to ask, what are the current problems that they're facing? Or what are some of the common questions that we get through our website, through our chat, through the emails, through our call centers, wherever, that we're getting so we can help to start to answer those questions? And then lastly, how can the knowledge and expertise of our subject matter experts help them with making their decisions How can you get the physicians more involved or the caregivers more involved into the overall uh, conversation? Yeah. So, you know, offering something of value, I think that's an interesting one as we think about uh, like our acquisition campaigns and and things like that, you know, that call to action, what are we really trying to get people to do? There's what we want them to do, but how do we, you know, balance that against realistically, what they want or willing to do, maybe is a better way to say it. We've thought about, you know, health risk assessment tools and you're filling out forms and attending seminars and kind of some online seminars. And there's different things like that, you know, and so you think about downloading reports or PDF documents like you and I would go to, you know, a website and, you know, yeah, I'll probably give you my information if the report sounds you know interesting enough. Just knowing who that audience is and what where that value lies. Third on the list, price your item of value appropriately. And so you may be thinking, well, we're not we're not involved in that P of marketing, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're, not, we're not pricing anything. But but realistically, if you think about it, the, the price could be even a non-monetary piece, right? So it's like, you know, what we're asking of them. You know, what's the price? So again, they they talk in here about time, attention, and information. When you're asking them to fill out a form, for example, on the website, are you just asking for name and email address and like they're kind of in and out? Or are they having to fill out a laundry list of things? Which again, price is too high, right? If I've got to spend more than like 10 or 15 seconds on this, I'm probably not going to fill it out. So how are you pricing? What's the investment that the consumer is going to have to make. Yeah, I like that time, attention, and information. And that's really important even when you're doing gated content. You have to show them the value of even giving up their information to get access to that or else they won't even bother with filling out the form. Here we go to their fourth and final recommendation, Reed, which is follow through on your top of funnel leads. Makes sense, right? If you get people that have raised their hand and said, I'm interested, 
make sure you, you take care of them and follow them up. They underscore here that CRMs are one of the most highly valuable assets in the strategy. I would also say CRM combined with marketing automation makes for a valuable one-two punch in this regard. Here, you have to curate your list of users, manage their information, and see how they're progressing through your pipeline. I know that there are a fair number of organizations that are mapping out customer pipelines using marketing automation to understand qualified leads. This is your great opportunity to ensure that you're not leaving a certain segment of those people high and dry. You want to make sure you follow up with them. So take a time to build a list of users in your CRM, do some targeting through your ad campaign, through your marketing automation, whatever it may be, and then use your CRM as your place where you're gathering all of that information. And suddenly you're starting to have now your first-party data list starting to be developed. There you go. Well, uh, four good tips. Again, this is from Search Engine Journal. We'll have the links to all this this fun stuff in the show notes. When we're back, we will wrap up the show with one more article. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, Reed, we've talked about the changes in marketing going from purely digital to a kind of a mix between traditional and digital, and also ways that you could start to build your own party lists. This last article we're going to cover today is a little bit different in that it gets into digital health literacy and how that is important and ways that we can improve it. Digital health literacy is always critically important when we're talking about the patient experience. So we found this article from Patient Engagement HIT, a good website that I always uh, I always check out to see what's on there. Yep. They talked about this article about how healthcare providers should consider these strategies to improve digital health literacy because, quite frankly, we're moving more and more into that space, right? We are. I, again, I've said this like a thousand times, but it's you know, so hard to de- delineate where what we do starts and stops and where quality picks up or experience, you know, chief experience officer or, uh, you know, other parts of the organization, even like HR and things like that. Healthcare providers are leaning in on patient engagement technologies. We all know that more and more consumers are becoming more literate with health, digital health solutions, but the industry is becoming much more high tech, digital health literate. Along with it, you have to have health literacy meaning patients have to know how to use these tools and how to make sense from the information, or else why do we even use it? Given the fact that our industry is moving more and more towards the space, this article kind of goes into some of the ways that we can actually start to help address that. Well, good news. The patient portal, remember, uh, that fixed everything. So <laughs> it's uh, all set. So we're <laughs> We're, we're good to go there. Mm-hmm. You know, people do in their daily lives expect certain things, right, as they participate in life, predominantly online. And so they do understand a lot of how this works. It talks in here about in an industry that's increasingly going digital, ensuring patients have the skill set will be will be critical. So, again, it's not that they don't understand all of this stuff, but there is uh, still some education that needs to be done. 
obviously we know the consequences of low, low digital health literacy is, is important. And the more that that gap deepens between people that are highly dig- digital health literate and those that aren't, it's going to cause a great uh, disparity in the way we deliver care. However, we do know that there are some inherent challenges to that in this landscape. There are certain audiences that don't have access to the tools or the high-speed internet that we need to access, access these tools. So they indicate here that in April 2022, researchers from the All of Us Research Program reported that digital health literacy keeps many low-income patients from using patient engagement technologies like wearables. Wearables, Mm. as you know, is something that you and I are very familiar with. In fact, I'm wearing one right now. I'm sure you are too. But there is this big gap that's happening. Most experts recommend that healthcare providers use sort of an omnichannel, multimodal patient engagement approach. But if you're dealing with some of these big challenges of trying to reach these people, it's going to be important for us to assess and support what our audience current access to these tools are first and foremost kind of leads also to the screening. Yeah, screening for digital health literacy is one that they point out in here. So it says that just as providers screen for regular health literacy, they should also screen for digital health literacy. Asking patients about broadband access and reliability is just, it's it's not enough. You know, instead they should be talking with patients about the devices that they own. Can they host a particular app if they use email, text messaging, you know, where, where are they downloading from? You know, what app store, things like that. This is an interesting one. They're talking here about camera settings. We've done some of this training with folks that are capturing content, you know, on the marketing side, right? Like how to uh, rule of thirds and how to use some of the different features of the camera, especially a couple of iterations ago of the iPhone. But that's an interesting one because so much of this is going to involve their ability to showcase and and provide feedback via these devices to their care team. Again, these skills, they say, may not be required for every patient engagement, but some of these technologies uh, do require some additional skills and maybe training, and providers should flag patients who don't have access to email or you know, can't download an app or maybe are not the best fit for some of these types of delivery methods. And in addition to that, you want to select the right technology. Most organizations have a portal, as you mentioned. This article is generous to say that they have intuitive user interfaces that resemble those of other tools patient might use in other aspects of their lives. Uh, I think the jury's out on that one still, but you know, it's, it's getting there. It's getting closer, much better than it was five years ago. But patient engagement technology adoption doesn't end there. There's other consumer facing tools that are very important. And you want to make sure that you're embracing all of the right ones. Online appointment scheduling is one, patient education materials, any kind of patient outreach systems like emails or other ways. I know there's a big conversation we're having at our health system about what's the right way to reach people that have patient portal accounts via the portal itself or via a separate email outside of the portal. These are the things that you really want to keep an eye on and make sure that you're not over indexing on tools that are more of the cool whiz bang sort of things and more focused on those things that are actually going to have the biggest impact to your customer. So this kind of bleeds into the next one, obviously, about promoting technology adoption itself. And they're talking here about the patient portal again, in that you know, having kind of that testimonial experience, you would drum up more adoption 
Well, same thing on the on the technology side that we're seeing now. Talking about not the not the tool itself, although there is some of that, but you know, what's the outcome? What's the benefit? How's this going to help you and improve your life, your health, convenience, things like that? Then you get into some of the like, how does it work pieces, and even security considerations. We see more and more you know data breaches and different mm-hmm. things that. That is probably top of mind for folks. Uh, what's this accessing? How does this work? I'm giving it access to my camera. What does that mean? Providers, they say, should show the patient how the tool is used, of course, and provide education and things like that. But I think they've got to walk people through ultimately the benefit here. I think if there's enough benefit to using something, then people will figure it out, right? And, and they'll be more apt to use it and use it more often because a lot of this is – the consistent use of. Yeah. It's like riding a bike. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like you show somebody something once and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. I got it. You know, it's kind of like doing my expense report here. Well, until I need to do an expense report, it doesn't do a whole lot of good to show me like how to submit that. Cause I'm going to forget by the time I finally get around to needing to do it. So some of it is kind of that constant, you know, trying to create a way in which, you know, we can give people the the use cases to continue to engage with it. And don't forget other things online. In fact, they underscore here that you want to help patients also in the selection of online resources. The National Institute of Health actually indicated that providers should help patients with online search, navigate online web pages, review online credibility, and outline other resources other than online search to get information. Wow, that's a lot to put on a provider, isn't it? <laughs> to like basically help your patients navigate that weird worldwide web that's out there and all the misinformation out there. But anyway, they kind of they kind of suggest, right, that providers here should give patients the skills to assess website credibility and kind of avoid those that maybe have a commercial bend to them or maybe have outdated information or, you know, information that needs to be updated. They also suggest that providers share with patients the credible, valuable places to go online. And you can, you can reaffirm that by looking at the About Us page. I think that really is an important thing to do. I, I guess the, the first thing is saying, maybe don't turn to Facebook for your healthcare information, right? Or your friends on Facebook, right? <laughs> well, it's fine because they're more versed in uh, international policy and things like that these days. So it's fine. You, you can go back to Facebook now for your health information. One last thing they suggest, right, Reed? Health navigators are, are coaching. We have people in this space, right? Health coaches and folks that w- you've worked with historically. You know, the first thing that came to mind for me when I saw this was like dietitians or something like that. You know, somebody that you worked with on a regular basis to change the way that you did something in life. And we still have those. But it's like, where does technology and, and digital kind of fit in this as a topic and a medium? And so I think that's an interesting one to think about, right? It's like, okay, well, how do we have health literacy and digital health literacy spe- specifically as part of the equation here? So, you know, are there community organizations that you could partner with? You know, places like the library. We still have libraries? Is that still a thing? They are still okay. exist. Okay. Yeah, right. they do. <laughs> they do. Okay. All right, good. Good, good. And so anyway, so there, there's different ways. And I think about churches, libraries, the YMCA, you know, other community organizations that, hey, you know, they've got, they have Wi-Fi, 
uh, they have people. They're already a gathering spot. People already go there uh, for various reasons. So how do we make this a topic and uh, make it more of a consistent opportunity? All in all, that relates to you know, how we should look at the entire digital spectrum, not just digital health, but also our digital tools, is we need to make it easier for our customers, for our patients to be using these tools so that we can actually start to leverage them more effectively, both mm-hmm. online and offline, as we talked about, about this mix now, and gather that first party data so we can continually know our customers more and more. Reed, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about next week's conference, the Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit. And we'll uh, share a little bit about what to expect for those people that are attending. We'll do that right after this break. All right. So uh, last couple of things before we let you go for the week, uh, I want to talk about the Healthcare Marketing Physician Strategy Summit. This is a uh, an annual conference. Typically happens, you know, COVID was a little weird, but typically happens about this time of year. And it's a great conference to go to for those that lead strategy you know, in their organization, kind of the marketing communication space. There's going to be some wonderful, wonderful people there. It's in Salt Lake City this year. Follow along online if you can't make it, certainly. Chris will be there mm-hmm. and uh, be speaking and uh, be around to connect and talk more, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to be doing a presentation along with my peer, Vanessa Hill. We're going to be talking about the technical elements of content strategy, getting into SEO, schema, structured data, all of that fun stuff. We've talked about that before on the show and definitely encourage you to come and attend that session. Also, as we do at every one of these conferences, Reed, that we've attended, uh, we're going to be doing a panel recording of the Touchpoint podcast next Tuesday afternoon. If you're in Salt Lake City, come find me or you can reach out to me either via Twitter, LinkedIn, or email or text if you know my my cell phone. I'll let you know where that is. Feel free to come and attend. You can listen in for kind of a quote unquote live recording of our show if you want. But I'm also going to be talking to a lot of people. So if you're there, you have a great story to tell, or you just want to come up and just say hello, reach out to me, come talk to me. Definitely am looking forward to uh, interacting with people in person again next week in Salt Lake City at the Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit. We'll see you there. It's always a good time and certainly uh, lots of fun going on. Be sure to check out the expo floor as well. A lot of great vendors and solutions that are worth uh, checking out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Touchpoint.health is the website. Sign up for the TPS report. This is kind of a live version of that. But the TPS reports and email comes every Monday, five articles to start your week. And uh, we'll have links to all these aforementioned conferences. So if you'd like to check them out further, sign up. Uh, even for those that are later in the year, you get that there. Let's do a couple of recommendations and we'll uh, we'll call it a week. What do you got today? Absolutely, Reed. I'm going to re- recommend uh, a food service that me and my wife have used for a number of years now. It's called Imperfect Foods. I may have recommended this before, but I'm going to recommend it again because I just love it. It seems like everybody has like some kind of food service. You know, you can subscribe to subscription boxes for different types of foods or wines or whatever, what have you. You could also get food delivered to you from your local grocery store if you'd like to. My wife and I actually are subscribers to Imperfect Foods, which is a company that looks at the produce that is deemed not appropriate for major grocery stores. So maybe the the fruit is a little bit smaller or the vegetables are a little bit bigger than normal. Maybe there's a little scars and blemishing, not damage to the produce itself, but you know, stuff to make it 
quote unquote unsellable in regular grocery stores. Well, this is a distribution for those kinds of foods, hence the name Imperfect Foods. Now they've expanded what they offer. They go well past just produce. It's almost like you get full food service if you'd like. We love it. We subscribe to it. Every week we uh, have the ability to kind of check out our box that's coming. They kind of pre-fill it based on what we've ordered before, but you can always go through and take off things you don't want and add things you do want. And then build your box for that week. You have that done by about noon of every, noon on Sunday of every week. And then the following Tuesday, we get our fresh delivery of our produce. We love it. I love the cause. I love the whole approach to it. And I tell you, it's very affordable. And it's just something I would recommend. So for those of you who are interested in maybe doing some kind of subscription food service, I recommend Imperfect Foods. There you go. Very cool. I'm going to recommend an app. Uh, I'm a little new on this, and so uh, I can just tell you what I think so far. Uh, but my son was starting to get interested in the stock market. What is it? How does it work? You know, can I start trading stocks? <laughs> kind of a thing. And so I thought, well, I mean, he's 14. So let's, number one, I'm not even sure that's legal. So I don't think you can have a brokerage <laughs> account till, till you're 18. But I thought, surely there's something out there where he could learn more effectively. And there are. There's a number of apps on the App Store uh, if you go and you type in Stock Simulator. And the one we landed on is called Rapunzel. Uh, And it's, of course, spelled weird. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L, Rapunzel. uh, Simulate, invest, and win. And so uh, you have to be 13. You have to be 18 to win prizes. But the idea is, is you sign up. It's free. You sign up and they give you, they say fake money, live trading, real prizes. So you get 10,000 fake dollars and you invest. And you can enter your portfolio into different competitions and win uh, like prizes and money and stuff like that. So it's almost like fantasy sports, but for stocks. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. So it's interesting. And it's got kind of a, an educational component to it where you can take quizzes and learn about the basics of the stock market. And you can kind of go down the, the path of, and you earn, you earn like badges and things, you know, for taking different quizzes and points and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, it looks neat. It's a well done app. I will say that for sure. It's really cool. It'll be something neat for him to, to try and kind of play around with and kind of figure out how things work before he gets a little bit older and can actually start uh, investing real money. I love it. Gamification of investments. I love it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and you're targeting kids. Uh, I, I actually think it's actually very helpful for people to know that. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, nice. yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, there it is, folks. Uh, another week. Again, let us know what you think. If we if we should do some of these, mix in some of these just kind of uh, news desk, if you will, shows every so often where we cover a few topics without an interview. Or if you hate it, let us know that as well. That's also <laughs> good to know. But we certainly appreciate you, appreciate you listening. So uh, reach out to us, Twitter, LinkedIn, probably the best way to do that. But for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.